0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast on immigration reform, the corpse that will not die. This is the Immigration Advocates Network, harnessing the power of technology and collaboration to support immigrants and their allies. My name is Pat Malone, and I'm associate director. Our guest today is Charles Kamasaki, Senior Cabinet Advisor of Unidos U.S., formerly National Council of La Raza and CLR. He has an advisory role on substantive and institutional issues, supervises immigration legal services and citizenship program strategies for Unidos U.S. affiliates and the field. He oversees other immigrant integration initiatives and previously for uh, two decades or more, he has served in a number of leadership roles, managed the group's research, policy analysis, and advocacy activity on civil rights, education, economic mobility, housing, community development, immigration, health, and other issues. In the 1980s, Charles Kamasaki was thrust into a self-described unlikely role as point person on immigration policy for the then named National Council of La Raza. He joined a small coalition of advocates that first coalesced to oppose immigration reform legislation, but later pivoted to shape and facilitate passage of the Immigration Reform and Control Act, or IRCA, and its follow-on bill, the Immigration Act of 1990. Uh, Currently, he is also a fellow at the Migration Policy Institute and author of uh, today's topic for our podcast, his book, Immigration Reform, The Corpse That Will Not Die, published by Mendel Villar Press in 2019. And with that, I welcome Charles Kamasaki.
1: Thanks so much, Pat. I'm a big fan of Ian's, and I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about my book.
0: Terrific. So we talked about focusing on really three aspects of your book and of the immigration reform history. One is to look at the role of racism and institutional racism in the immigration reform process. Um, Two is to uh, take away some of the lessons that we might apply all these years later. And three is to highlight policy options that you envision for the future. So let's jump in and uh, get started. Okay.
1: Uh, So if you wanna learn about racism in the debate, right? just have to look at today's headlines, and I think we're reminded every day about how racialized the debate about immigration reform is. Uh, But I think it's also useful to look back into history. Um, I think many of us and many of the uh, listeners to this podcast and members of, of IAN will know that early in our history, the very first immigration laws were heavily racialized um, it perhaps uh, no better uh, exemplified than the Chinese Exclusion acts and the uh, national origins quotas um, which were by definition right racist um, I'd like to fast forward a little bit to the debate around on uh, un- unauthorized migration from Mexico which, uh, in my opinion, was the catalyst uh, for the Immigration Reform and Control Act of, of 1986 uh, and to some extent for uh, the Immigration Act of 1990. It's important to understand that prior to the 1960s, um, there were actually no limits on immigration from Mexico um, or from the rest of the Western Hemisphere, uh, for that matter. Um, and what began with the 1965 act on, on immigration, um, which I think many of us view as a very generous uh, law, which it was uh, and one that was explicitly uh, rejecting uh, notions of racism in immigration policy, which to a large extent uh, it did do, um, is that that law also began a process that severely cut uh, legal immigration uh, from Mexico, um, which ultimately I think contributed to the beginnings of the current um, situation with respect to large scale unauthorized migration from the South. Um, So that was kind of one factor that was, I I believe an explicitly racialized factor in the debate. Second, Something else happened in the 1960s, which was the so-called Bracero Program. Uh, this was a very large temporary worker program uh, that was initially established during World War II in the 1940s as an emergency measure uh, to ensure that the crops were, were uh, picked and um, that food processing operations Uh, could operate while so many people, so many of our young men were abroad uh, fighting in World War II, Uh, that so-called emergency program actually lasted until 1964. Um, At its height, it was allowing about 800,000 or so um, uh, temporary workers, mainly from Mexico, mainly, although not exclusively in agriculture. Uh, That program was highly criticized, uh, both from a uh, uh, labor law perspective, that the notion was that uh, some significant number of these workers were subject to exploitation, uh, but also by immigration restrictionists who believed that, uh, I think correctly, uh, that fairly sig- uh, significant numbers of Bracero workers uh, didn't go home uh, after their temporary uh, uh, contracts expired. Uh, so that program actually ended in 1964. Um, and uh, the th- a third factor that led to very large scale unauthorized migration from Mexico uh, during that period was that uh, these two major uh, acts, ending the Bracero program and cutting legal immigration from Mexico, uh, which was begun by the 1965 act, coincided with this massive increase in the Mexican labor force. This was a period of, of that country's greatest fertility, uh, but uh, it, it, it didn't have the economy uh, that would allow uh, those new workers to be absorbed into the labor force. So uh, given that we had ended uh, many lawful means of entering the U.S., um, we, uh, as as some people noted, and as I write in my book, uh, there was kind of a willful ignorance that that would lead to large scale, uh, unauthorized migration. That migration was extraordinarily controversial and very heavily racialized. Um, So it was not at all uncommon uh, to have members on the floors of the House of Representatives or um, the Senate to be talking about the wetback menace Uh, that we had in our country, um, kind of echoing themes of the so-called yellow peril that led to um, uh, the Chinese Exclusion Acts. Mm. I I think what's also important to understand about the early debate over IRCA uh, was that um, while again I think often we have a nostalgia for um, kind of the past and we think, gosh, you know, current debates are so heavily racialized, it's important to understand that um, there were other factors in play in addition to, uh, I think, uh, deep racial animus against um, so-called Mexicans, um, which was often extended to include Mexican-Americans who were, who were already here. Um, and, and that was uh, caused by a couple of factors. One was uh, the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, coincided with the height of the resettlement of Southeast Asian refugees um, in the United States. Uh, over that period from the end of Vietnam War and say 1976 through uh, the next decade, we resettled um, something on the order of 1.4 or 1.5 uh, Southeast Asian refugees, uh, 1.4, 1.5 million Southeast Asian refugees in the United States. You know, by contrast, um, right, recent refugee quotas even before the Trump administration were, you know, 70,000, 80,000. Um, so these were very, very large um, numbers. Um, and uh, while we currently don't think of Southeast Asians as a particularly controversial population uh, when it comes to questions of of, of racial animus uh in those days um there was a great deal of racial animus um against that community and then finally um what i describe in my book is the precipitating acts um, that led to um, uh, congress finally taking up immigration reform which had been festering as an issue since the 1960s um were the cuban haitian boat lifts so in Um, the late 70s and early 1980s, um, there were a series of boat lists from Cuba um, and from Haiti. Um, Those were also extraordinarily controversial viewed as a national security crisis that demanded um, congressional action. Um, So that combination of factors, all heavily dealing with very heavily racialized stereotype populations, Mexicans coming across the border from the South, from the south. Um, Southeast Asians coming in as, as refugees, but still the subject of uh, enormous uh, animus from much of the public um, and the Cuban Haitian boat lift really crystallized into a moment um, and into a debate. I, I believe very heavily uh, uh, racialized debate um, that contributed to the uh, 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 need or, or the perceived need to enact Comprehensive immigration reforms uh, in the 1980s.
0: Hmm. And before we move into some of the the lessons that we can take away from the reform, I think it would be helpful to hear from you on maybe some concrete examples of how this, how racial, this animus racial animus and these migration patterns um, and public perception and such um, actually actually shaped or influenced the, the, debate, debate, the debate, and maybe at a very maybe. high level, describe the the program that, that that we ended up with.
1: Well, let me um, save the second part of that question of what ERCA and the 1990 Act actually did and address your first question. So, you know, if you look back at the debate in the 80s um, and 90s, in so many ways, it looks remarkably like the debates we've been having over the last couple of decades. Uh, There were, believe it or not, pre-9-11 allegations of terrorism, that people coming across the southern border posed some sort of terrorist threat uh, to the country. Um, There were, uh, there was kind of this assumption that Um, you know, immigration from Europe was okay. And in fact, we needed to uh, change our immigration system to uh, encourage the importation of more people with advanced degrees, as an example, or higher skilled, uh, which was very much a code for we need more people from Europe, fewer people from Latin America. And And at that time, I would say there was not nearly the same degree of uh, potential supply coming from South Asia of, of highly skilled um, uh, workers. Um, there were uh, a whole series of uh, allegations put forth by uh, groups on the anti-immigrant side of the debate. Many of them heavily racialized, uh, not just the traditional, uh, people come in and steal jobs or people come in and get on welfare. And I always thought it was kind of an interesting that um, anti-immigrant advocates would simultaneously make the charge that people from Mexico were coming in and both stealing jobs and were on welfare. Um, But there were uh, allegations of a fifth column that there was some sort of separatist movement uh, taking place, that what const that migration was really cover for an invasion, um, and there were traditional kind of Cold War um, allegations as well. But I think it's fair to say uh, many of those were very heavily um, racialized, and I think they were often um, without even knowing it, kind of built into the way uh, laws were structured. Um, with respect to your the second part of your question um pat what is very important to understand about the immigration reform and control act debate um is that the first iterations of what later became IRCA and the first proposals of what later became the immigration act of 1990 were both very heavily restrictionist so just to give you an example um, the first versions of ERCA of included uh, expanded border enforcement, um, the imposition of employer sanctions, making it uh, unlawful to knowingly hire an, an undocumented worker. It included a so-called hard cap on legal immigration that probably would have cut um, family-based visas by about a third. Um... In response to this Cuban-Haitian boat lift, there were also proposals to severely cut back uh, asylum protections. ERCA um, uh, also proposed increases in temporary agricultural worker programs. Uh, and finally, a very limited legalization program that um, experts at the time estimated might have legalized perhaps a million uh, previously undocumented immigrants. Uh, that was, say, from the, the bills that were introduced in, in 1981 and uh, debated through 1984. Um, these, by any definition, I think, are um, have to be characterized as highly restrictionist bills. But as enacted, ERCA uh, and the 1990 Act, while they pr- retained their predecessors' enforcement provisions, uh, were far more generous. Um, For example, rather than legalizing a million people, uh, they legalized nearly 3 million. Instead of cutting legal immigration, they nearly doubled it from its 1980 levels. Um, Instead of a major guest worker program for agriculture, um, they substituted an agricultural legalization program. Uh, The bills did not cut back asylum protection significantly, but did create Uh, Temporary Protected Status, TPS, covering some 800,000 Central Americans. And uh, the 1990 Act codified a stay of deportation and work authorization to cover perhaps a million immediate family members of newly legalized immigrants. who was then called at the time the Family Unity Protections. Um, And as a former practitioner, Pat, I think you remember some of the debate over that. And in many ways, That administrative action, initially by the INS, later codified by the 1990 Act, served as the precedence, in effect, for DACA and and DAPA. Um, So these reforms, I think, taken together can't just be characterized as center-left, as as some people argued at the time, but really as as fundamentally progressive in in direction and character. Hmm.
0: Thank you, Charles. So we won't get to spend as much time as we'd like on the details of these provisions and the impact of the act. But we're hoping that you might look back on that process and policy and address some of the lessons that we, we might take away or that we might apply all these years later.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's it's very hard to uh, because times change and, and, and people change and circumstances change. Uh, to directly apply specific tactics from a debate that, after all, happened uh, more than three decades ago uh, to the current time. Although, again, I would emphasize um, that as much as we think of today's debate as unique or different or special or or having um, characteristics that uh, require new strategies, Uh, and and I would acknowledge all of those are are true. Um, It is remarkable how the same sets of issues and same challenges over and over again uh, seem to arise. Uh, So in terms of lessons, I would just mention three. Um, One is that as advocates in the 1980s and and through the early 1990s, It seemed to me that we made progress in shaping uh, better legislation, um, almost invariably by fighting the conventional wisdom. So when ERCA was first introduced to great fanfare, blessed by a blue ribbon commission, supported by bipartisan sponsors, very capable legislators, um, Alan Simpson and, and Romano Mazzoli, um tacitly supported by uh, people like Ted Kennedy um there was this assumption that it was a policy juggernaut that would just be rammed through um and through a whole series of procedural and advocacy and political actions uh the coalition that I was then a very junior member of uh succeeded in in stopping those bills um much to the consternation um of the Of the pundits and and the press um, and and people were stunned um, that that this legislation, which had this bipartisan aura of moderation, could actually be stopped in Congress um, so that's the first thing. Um, the second was uh, the second lesson I would argue in addition to fighting the conventional wisdom um, is. That ultimately, if you're looking for a result, you have to look for opportunities to compromise. And that may not be fully popular with, with all of your listeners. Um, and in my book, I describe how in 1985, after ERCA had been had had passed the Senate but been stopped in the House twice. I mean, just as it appeared that we were winning, right? We were the opponents, we were trying to stop the bill. Um, our coalition really led by a, a, a backbencher named Rep. Representative Esteban Torres from California um, broke with um, the, his elders in the Hispanic Caucus, all of whom were diehard opponents, um, to conduct back-channel negotiations with the bill sponsors um, to move the legislation in a more progressive direction. Um, similarly, I think many of us uh, who had been previously vigorously opposing the bill um, decided to uh, pivot towards uh, active negotiations to see if we could improve the bill. And um, as I described earlier, we were able to do that. Um, I think it is fair to note, however, that uh, back in the 80s and the 90s, it was the Senator Simpsons and the Representative Mazzolis of the world that were forced to compromise um, in order to get a product. They were compromising to accept what we viewed as improvements uh, in the legislation. Um, looking into the future, however, we are the ones who are going to be the proponents of legislation, and it's it's likely us uh, who will be asked to compromise. And I think that's something very important. Uh, finally, the lesson I would uh, draw, and this I think should be of interest to your your listeners um, who I know include really the, the best practitioners in the country, is in crafting uh, uh, improvements to IRCA, um, we were guided in large part by people who were really terrific practitioners, a guy named Warren Leiden who was the first executive director of the american immigration lawyers association michael myers who was then representing church world service um, then a very significant and, and remains a very significant practitioner in the field and having them and others involved in crafting amendments or improvements to the legislation uh, really made a difference uh, and as i say um, you know many predicted that legalization wouldn't wouldn't legalize more than a million undocumented people, and and by the end of the the, uh, legalization period, nearly three million people have been legalized. So I think having um, practitioners at the table able to, in effect, reverse engineer uh, improvements that we we needed to see in the legislation really made a difference.
0: Hmm. And I'm interested in looking at policy options. I know you've talked about some ways in which we might expand or revive or extend old programs, Um, but I'm also interested in, you know, the title of your book, The Corpse That Will Not Die. (laughs) When you (laughs) think of immigration reform in the future, what you know, why is it the corpse that will not die, And yet, you know, what are the options and and reasons for optimism in the future?
1: well, i i the the title of my book was actually stolen a little bit from uh, a member of Congress um, who 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 entitled it, um a guy named Dan Lundgren, who was the ranking member on the immigration subcommittee at the time who. Um, had started off as a supporter. When he saw the improvements in the bill, um, he decided he would oppose it and he actually was able to kill it once on the House floor in 1986 before it was revived and at the time uh, he called the bill a corpse. Um, and he later noted that at some point the the, the toe on the, tor- on the corpse began to twitch um, And and the bill was ultimately revived. And and the reason I think it's kind of a timeless title is because, um, and maybe this belongs more in the lessons category, but, you know, IRCA uh, and the 1990 Act actually uh, were declared dead on multiple occasions uh, before they were enacted. And they were dead. Uh, And it took enormous efforts from, uh, members of Congress and advocacy groups, uh, to try and revive the legislation, um, in ways that would be, um, I think consistent with our values and our interests. Um, going forward in terms of policy, um, you know, there, the, the outlines of immigration reform, of comprehensive reform, some form of legalization, uh, some form of, of, uh, of, increased legal immigration uh, to allow legal channels for people to come um, various enforcement measures those outlines have remained literally the same since the 1970s until right the s744 which which passed the senate um, but was never considered in the house i think there may well be ways that we can achieve many of those goals uh, but perhaps by tweaking the formula a bit. So just to give you a, a few examples. Um, you know, we're all used to a legalization program that looked like ERCA or that looked like DACA or what we hoped uh, would have been DAPA, right? An application process um, that's within a limited time period or a certain period of, of time with documentation requirements and so forth. Mm-hmm. I think there might be other formulas. Not that, that that I would oppose that, but there might be other formulas, and uh, and, and one example might be the so-called advancing the so-called registry date, uh, including a statute of limitations, as it were, uh, for un, unauthorised status, which has the virtue of um, being a, a, a principle that. Is largely accepted in American law that I think most people can understand. Yeah, if you're a violator or an offender, you know, you ought to pay a price at some point, but it shouldn't dog you forever. Um, And uh, could also have the virtue of of automatically renewing. So if there were, say, a three-year or a five-year statute of limitations of some sort, um, or a rolling registry date in immigration parlance, That might be another formula that we look at uh, with respect to legalization. Um, With respect to legal immigration, you know, we're we're obviously working at an extraordinarily difficult time, right, with enormous unemployment. uh, But even beyond the pandemic-induced situation, um, we're also at a time when the future of work in the country, whether it's automation or, or other factors, globalization, may be uh, uh, having enormous effects on our workforce and the shape of our workforce. At a time of such uncertainty, it may not be wise and it may simply not be doable to construct a legal immigration system, um, uh, listing specific numbers for specific categories as our current system does, um, in a way that's gonna be helpful or useful um, for our country and our economy going forward. And my colleagues at the Migration Policy Institute have previously put forth a proposal for some sort of commission, um, you know, similar to maybe uh, the Federal Reserve Commission uh, or the Federal Reserve Board that um, is, uh, you know, a step removed from politics, maybe staffed by people similar to those who produce unemployment reports at, at the Bureau of Labor Statistics um, to put forth on an annual or biannual or or whatever the right period would be um, uh, numbers of of people who would be allowed to enter um, by category on, on a regular basis as, as opposed to trying to uh, predict what the future will look like 5, 10, 15 years out because I think one of the lessons from uh, examining the debates over immigration reform is uh, they don't happen very often. Um, And and so maybe we need a more flexible statute um, that can accommodate uh, changing needs and changing conditions um, over time. And and finally, with respect to enforcement, it's it's an area that's um, not discussed enough. And while I think many of us know that we uh, know very well and can articulate all the kinds of enforcement we don't like um, many of us also have trouble articulating what kinds of enforcement would be appropriate uh, and in that context i would encourage us to look at examples from uh, the criminal justice system that where where uh, it isn't assumed that everyone uh who is a violator is going to get the maximum penalty right now right so uh, currently there is only kind of one penalty right you're you're either admissible or you're deportable um and surely there are remedies in between that um are appropriate for the degree of the offense but don't in effect impose the most severe penalty on all violators regardless of their circumstances so Those are some of the ideas I think we might consider uh, in the next round of of immigration reform. Mm.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for your thoughts and reflections on that. I did ask you in there whether you have reasons to be optimistic. Um, I I do,
1: Pat. And um, one of the things I've been saying about uh, my book is, uh the, the very first time um a precursor to ERCA passed one house uh was in nineteen seventy-two when Peter Rodino brought forth the, his first to sanctions bill, which which passed the House by an enormous margin and was never taken up by the Senate. It it actually passed again um the following year in 1973, again not taken up by the Senate. Um the period from nineteen seventy-two to 1986 when ERCA was enacted, that, you know, 14-year period, and then even the 16 or 18-year period until the Immigration Act of 1990 passed, it feels to me like that period um, looks a lot like what we've experienced over the last dozen years or so with bills having passed one house, but not the other, it's in 2006 and, um, and 2013. Um, and so I think, you know, in the moment when you're working on trying to get something passed and right, it, it, it doesn't happen, it, it, it just feels like an enormous crushing failure. Um, and I totally get that. Um, I, I, I quote one of my colleagues in, in the book saying after the Um, 2007 bill went down, it was, you know, like a death in the family, only worse. Mm. Um, But I think if we're able to step back a little bit and look at the broader span of of history, uh, we'll see that these things don't happen very often. Uh, And what we have to be able to do as advocates is to be prepared the moments when they can happen not that anything is ever guaranteed and in, in the uh, when it comes to policy debates um, and I think if we're ready uh, each time uh, opportunities arise uh, that then I think we are um, uh, likely as not um, the next go-around uh, to be able to shape immigration reform that's actually enacted again as I say um, the the period of what feels like failure over the last dozen years or so uh, to me looks a lot like uh, the the period that that ultimately led to IRCA's and, and the 1990 acts enactment mm-hmm.
0: yeah I'd like to think that we're building our resilience and our and our will and our ability to to persist
1: these days, so in, indeed. But we're also building a you know strong advocacy networks um, and organizing networks and, and policy capacity, um, and you know the practitioner field is 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 larger and more talented um, than it's ever been, um, and so I'd like to think that you know you can never guarantee anything in in. Uh, in in policy debates or in politics. Uh, but I'd like to think that we're better positioned as a field uh, to shape good policy and then to implement it uh, than we've ever been before.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think we may be more community and organized or powered than we've ever been before. And that's going to be an important component um, for future change and negotiations.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think, uh, and I do say this at, at at the conclusion of my book, that we have to be able to use all the tools in our toolbox. We need community organizing. We need lobbyists behind the scenes in Washington. Um, we need really great communications so we can, um, you know, build political support uh, for our movements. We need to engage in the electoral process because ultimately, right, who we elect is, is ultimately um going to going to are going to be ones casting the votes or 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 shaping the, the policy so you know i i believe we need to we need all parts of our field uh working uh to give us the best chance of getting uh really positive reforms
0: right thank you so much charles kamasaki for making this stop along your virtual book tour in pandemic times where can people go if they want to hear more about this or read your book?
1: Well, probably the best uh, single resource is uh, the book's website. It's um, named, uh, it's charleskamasaki.com. So C-H-A-R-L-E-S-K-A-M-A-S-A-K-I, all one word, dot com. Um, and there uh, are collected uh, a number of, of resources about the book. Um, there was a time when it had a very busy events uh, portion of the book, which has uh, been cut back considerably in the times of the pandemic. It also gives you links of, of places that um, if, if you wanna purchase the book uh, at a retail store, you can do that or or online, it gives you a number of options there as well.
0: Terrific. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise and uh, best wishes in in spreading the word and your wisdom and understanding about our own history of immigration reform and our hopes for the future.
1: Thank you so much, Pat, and really, really appreciate uh, Ian giving me this opportunity.